the campaign begins. In my heart, I know that now is the time to put the partisan wrangling out front. Let's get it over with. We are now headed into what is a completely unnecessary election. Leaders trade jabs as voters consider options to cast their ballots safely in a pandemic. Trouble in the classroom. The teacher was not contacted by Vancouver Coastal Health. Concerns about infection, contact tracing and shortfalls in communication. And a nautical disaster. How a float home ended up smashed to pieces. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. One day after NDP leader John Horgan called a snap fall election, the province's three main political parties are already fighting for your vote. The Greens, Liberals and NDP are busy nominating and naming candidates while the party leaders are hitting a campaign trail that looks very different due to COVID-19. Richard Zussman reports. Hey, Off the bus to the podium, a few chats, an elbow bump, back on the bus. NDP leader John Horgan trying out a new style of COVID campaigning in North Vancouver Tuesday. A seat the party won in 2017 and is desperate to hold. But while Horgan was hoping to focus on health care, he was forced to once again defend his decision on calling a snap election. This is about making sure that people have a say. It's never a bad time to ask British Columbians what they want to do. Horgan promising 10 new primary urgent care centres by the end of the year. Great to have you here. This, while Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson was kicking off the first full day of campaigning in Surrey where his party lost two seats in 2017. It's a time for complete renewal in Surrey. And Wilkinson challenging Horgan to face him three times in televised debates. We're saying the way to get more information to British Columbians is with three televised debates between John Horgan, Sonia Firstenau and me. Whatever works for all of the parties and all of the people that participate, I'm ready to go. The election will come down to Metro Vancouver. The Liberals unveiling a list of candidates Tuesday, including former Vancouver City Councilor George Affleck, setting up the Battle of the Georges, taking on George Heyman in Vancouver Fairview, a riding the Liberals lost by nearly 7,000 votes last election. I think the last election was an anomaly, uh, and so I think there's an opportunity to win there. The number one riding on the NDP's wish list is Coquitlam Burke Mountain. Former MP Finn Donnelly now running provincially for the first time, hoping to flip a seat won by the Liberals in the closest riding in the province last time. Having a, a profile and your record uh, so that uh, voters can make a decision uh, is going to be very important. But unlike campaigns of the past with multiple stops in a day, the leaders were out just once. A COVID precaution making it clear it might be hard to hold ground or gain ground when you can't cover much ground. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well said. All right, so how do you engage with voters if you aren't knocking on doors? Keith Baldry joins us with more on that. And Keith, social media skills will be very important during this election. Perhaps they could take some lessons from you. <laughs> Indeed, it is going to be a completely different campaign. I have talked to candidates on all the parties, and basically really minimal door knocking is going to occur. It's literally get, put it on your mask and walking down the street, get it on your computer, Zooming and Skyping with your constituents, putting Facebook videos together and stuff like that. So a lot of them are going to be better at it than others. And really, I think it's going to be a generational uh, uh, contrast as well for candidates. Now, they're also going to be doing this while we continue to talk about COVID-19. It's a daily reality. 
Here's the latest numbers overnight for COVID-19 cases. First of all, there are 96 new cases, which brings our total in the pandemic to 8,304. Thankfully, there have been no deaths since yesterday. Our total remains at 227 of people who have passed away from the virus. In terms of hospital, not much movement there, up one to 61. ICU cases of that total, 22 people now in ICU. That's an increase of one as well. Our recovery rate continues to be high, 6,589. That's 79% of the cases. Our uh, active cases, though, are down dramatically, down 500 from yesterday to 1,465. And the people in isolation continues to hover around the 3,300 number. Those are people who've been exposed to the virus or have the virus themselves. So mm -hmm. we've been tracking fairly consistently, Sophie, at about 100 cases a day. And we'll probably see that continue. All right, Dr. Bonnie Henry did not hold a pandemic briefing today, Keith, but she did speak at another event and she shared some pretty disturbing details about what it's like for her yeah. to be at the forefront of this pandemic. Very disturbing and, and frankly quite shocking, I think, to people. I put it out on Twitter and people are extremely upset about this. She was talking today on a panel at the Union of BC uh, Municipalities Convention and she talks about what it's been like leading the face of the, of the fight against the pandemic and the virus and the abuse she and her staff received, including death threats. Here's Dr. Henry. There are many people who don't like what I do or don't like the way I say it or don't like my shoes or don't like um, and I don't feel like and feel quite um, able to send me uh, nasty notes, to uh, leave phone calls, to harass my office staff. Um, I've had to have security in my house. Um, I've had death threats. You know, how do we deal with that? Um, and I, I sense that people find that it's, uh, it's okay to do that for a woman who's up front more so than um, some of our male leaders. So very disturbing and very disappointing, obviously. Dr. Henry's next briefing is on Thursday in terms of in-person, and I have a feeling this is going to come up for, for more discussion. I would think. All right, thanks for that, Keith. BC's chief electoral officer is reassuring British Columbians tonight that voting in person during the pandemic will be safe. Despite that, a lot of voters are ordering mail-in ballots, and as Sarah McDonald reports, that could leave the final outcome hanging for weeks. Buckle up for a campaign blitz like no other and the almost guaranteed confusion among British Columbians surrounding the voting process as the province gears up to hit the polls. BC has never held an election during a global pandemic before. So what exactly will that look like? On Tuesday, Elections BC shedding new light on the process and the protocol, including one week of advanced voting and an option to do so by phone, with an already surging demand for mail-in ballots, potentially complicated the process of naming a leader on October 24th. We've already received approximately 20,000 requests for vote-by-mail packages since the election was called. Compare that to just 6,500 requests in total last provincial election, with upwards of 40% of all voters potentially casting their ballots by mail this year. Those ballots counted two weeks after election day, meaning even relatively close ridings may not crown a winner until November. Schools will be used as polling stations, but only on weekends, and that includes Election Day. As for what we can expect inside, well, by now familiar COVID-19 protocol, that includes masks, hand sanitization, and physical distancing, with voters even being asked to bring their own pencil to mark the ballot. We need it to ensure any election in BC could happen safely. It is such an integral part of our democratic process to be able to vote. 
Also integral to the process of casting and counting ballots, volunteers, many of them typically seniors. The demographic already considered high risk when it comes to COVID, now faced with navigating new voting protocol. As long as I wear a mask, I'm okay. Those in long-term care homes or acute care hospitals impacted by COVID-19 and anyone in isolation can vote by phone. I think they might not vote because they might just feel why bother? In a year where virtually nothing has been normal, one thing's for certain, this election won't be either. Sarah McDonald, Global News. The West Vancouver Teachers Association is raising concerns about contact tracing. That's after a teacher in that district tested positive for COVID-19. The association says the teacher was never contacted by health authorities and didn't know she had been exposed to an infected student until other students contacted her. Grace Key has more. Two positive COVID cases at Sentinel Secondary in West Vancouver are drawing criticism over notification. On Saturday, the principal notified parents and teachers that someone in the school tested positive. That same day, a few students who were told to self-isolate contacted their teacher about remote learning. Well, she was really surprised that she hadn't been contacted by the health authority, considering that this happened within her classroom and that she had been interacting with all of the students. On Sunday, the teacher wasn't feeling well and tested positive for COVID that same day. An investigation will determine how the student and teacher got infected. The plan around cohorts and contact tracing isn't enough. Like clearly from this story, um, you can see that keeping students together and then trying to decide uh, who had contact with each other not everyone who needed to be notified was notified. The protocol is to identify close contacts so they could self-isolate for 14 days. But not everyone in a cohort is considered a close contact. Even if you're in a classroom um, with somebody who has COVID, if you're sitting at a desk and you're not close to them, you've not had close contact with them. Also, the school sent out a letter on Saturday, but Vancouver Coastal Health didn't have Sentinel on its exposure list until late Tuesday morning. If you know that something is happening and yet you look on the health authority's website and it says it's not happening, your confidence in the system is diminished. Vancouver Coastal wanted to ensure that the family, the school family, was uh, notified first before it was posted. So there was a, a bit of a delay. The Teachers Association says relying on contact tracing isn't enough. Other measures such as better distancing and wearing masks are also needed. Grace Key, Global News. Well, with the first full week of the school year now in the books, the checklist of potential COVID-19 symptoms parents are supposed to look for is getting shorter. The health ministry guidelines had earlier included a list of 17 symptoms, but that's now been cut to just seven. Brad McLeod has the details. The message has been clear. If you're sick, even a little bit, stay home. But parents and students are now being asked to unlearn that lesson. There are so many things that cause children to have a, one symptom that have nothing to do with an infection. Before, there was a laundry list of symptoms which would have kept kids at home. But that has changed. You should still be concerned if your child has a fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, loss of smell, diarrhea, or nausea. But now, many symptoms are not enough to keep students from school, like a sore throat, runny nose, headache, fatigue, loss of appetite, and several 
other symptoms. Why would you reduce the list if that's a concern? A slight runny nose by itself, um, then that in and of itself is not a reason for a child, and we're talking about children here, um, to necessarily stay home from school. This teacher says she gets the dilemma. You miss a lot of school when you stay home. But at the same time, go to school, risking getting out a whole bunch of other people sick. The BC Teachers Federation says they understand the motivation is to keep students in school if they are simply experiencing allergies. There was no communication, certainly with teachers or the BCTF around the reasons for those changes. And so they caused a lot of alarm at first. We need to find that balance um, to make sure that we are providing children with those opportunities that they need to be in the school setting. And no doubt, keeping more parents working to bring BC's economy back. But it brings about a new burden, properly diagnosing. Oh my goodness, what if my child did have it or turned out my child did have it and I we gave it to somebody else's family? That would be terrifying. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. One of Vancouver's iconic high-end restaurants, Giardino's, is temporarily shutting down. Owner Umberto Mengi says he finds it difficult to operate under the current circumstances and that because of the pandemic, Giardino's cannot provide the same service and atmosphere that it was built on. Mengi promises the restaurant will open again once circumstances are different. As COVID cases rise across the country, health officials say Canada is at a crossroads in controlling the virus. New modeling released today shows the epidemic is accelerating nationally. Health officials warn there will be nearly 156,000 cases and 9,300 deaths by early October unless Canadians readopt the same degree of health. Another flashpoint in the Black Lives Matter movement, the preparations to prevent chaos in Louisville, Kentucky. Coming up on the news hour. And who would steal a slide? The search for missing playground equipment later. But first, a slow motion disaster is happening right now just off the east coast of Valdez Island. On Sunday, a float home that was being towed through the strait broke loose and capsized. It's now caught on the rocks and slowly breaking apart with a big storm on the way. Aaron MacArthur reports. Submerged and stuck fast on some rocks just off the east coast of Valdez Island. This float home never made it to its destination. So Sunday afternoon, they were trying to go through Polier Pass against a uh, flood tide, which was running about six knots, and uh, that's when they ran into trouble with it. It listed over, and uh, they cut the uh, tow line. The uh, house itself ended up floating all night, ended up right in front of my place. There is already debris that has broken off the dilapidated float home, but it is more than just an eyesore. This is a rockfish conservation area and cleaning it up has new urgency. The first major fall storm cycle is threatening to tear what's left of the structure apart. It's uh, an exposed area. It'll uh, be bashed around on the reef and uh, probably break up and spread uh, debris all along. The question now is who is going to clean it up? The owner of the derelict cabin cruiser that was towing the float home is ultimately responsible, but there are doubts they have enough insurance or the means to pay for salvage. The Coast Guard already on scene, but passed the buck to Transport Canada. According to local politicians, there are no easy ways to deal with these sorts of issues. What would be ideal and doesn't exist, and we've run into this problem 
many times over the years is that somebody should clean it up and figure out who's going to pay the bill um, later. In a statement, Transport Canada says it's making plans to remove the float home as an obstruction under the Navigable Waters Act. But people on Valdez worry it will be too late and they will be left to literally pick up the pieces. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And on that note, let's check in with meteorologist Christy Gordon to tell us more about what we need to know about this first fall storm, Christy. It's hard to believe it's on deck. I see a little bit of sunshine off in the distance, but it is moving in. Here's a look at the winds that we're expecting. So the strongest winds will be in the areas in red where we have wind warnings in place with gusts potentially up to 70 kilometers an hour. That includes the Sunshine Coast and the Southern Gulf Islands as well. So potential for ferry delays overnight and tomorrow morning. The area in yellow are under a special weather statement, 40 to 60 kilometer an hour gusts. Here's the timeline. So uh, Sunshine Coast, Vancouver Island will see that over overnight tonight. That'll be the strongest winds and the heaviest rain. It will shift down into southern Vancouver Island and Metro Vancouver early tomorrow morning, likely affecting your commute to work, certainly. So it eases in the afternoon, Chris, but we're still expecting potentially heavy rain at times and some gusty winds, but certainly for our region, the strongest winds and heaviest rain tomorrow morning. All right, we've been warned. Thanks, Christy. Well, First Nations commercial and sport fishery groups are calling on the fisheries minister to remove salmon farms from the Discovery Islands. The request stems from the Cohen Commission, which recommended net pen salmon farming in the area be prohibited by the end of this month unless the fisheries minister is satisfied that the farms pose a minimal risk to migrating Fraser River sockeye salmon. Although the deadline is eight days away, the DFO says scientific research still hasn't reached a conclusion. And if we don't come together as a unified group, we'll be the ones that will be at the wheel when the dinosaurs disappeared. And we'll be telling our children that there used to be salmon in the Fraser River. In the decade since Cohen, the Cohen Commission has come out, there's been extensive science done into the health of both wild and farmed salmon. And uh, the, the body of science is telling us that, done responsibly, as we do, salmon farms are not harming wild salmon populations. The B.C. Salmon Farmers Association says it produces about 75% of the salmon harvested in the province every year and has agreements with 20 coastal First Nations. Up next, the early days of the B.C. SPCA. Lots of animals, unfortunately, suffered horrific abuse. How 125 years of preventing cruelty is worth celebrating. And isn't gravity great? Adrenaline junkies get a new attraction on Cypress Mountain. Still a little bit of leftover volume here over at the Lionsgate Bridge after clearing an earlier police incident that had southbound traffic blocked briefly. All lanes are once again open, but it's slow off the North Shore. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $40 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One over the Lionsgate Bridge. Nanaimo RCMP impounded a number of vehicles this past weekend, shutting down an illegal but very popular drag racing and stunting site. Video shows a driver doing an epic burnout at Jack Point near BC Ferry's Duke Point Terminal on Sunday. Officers say a hundred people had gathered to watch the smoke show. This driver was one of ten who had their vehicles seized for seven days. 
30 tickets were issued under the Motor Vehicle Act, and 11 vehicle inspection orders were handed out to those with unsafe rides. Well, thieves cleaned out a Metro Vancouver charity in an early morning break-in. At around 5 a.m., the culprits cut through the wall of the Maple Ridge Pit Meadows Christmas Hamper Society's building on the Albion Fairgrounds. A large safe with gift cards and cash totaling about $10,000 was stolen. Ridge Meadows RCMP say a black pickup truck was seen speeding away around the time of the charity heist. It's just unconscionable. The fact that it took them seven minutes to complete that is really quite soul-destroying, given that we have never had this situation happen down here before. The sickening part is that, you know, we have so many people in need, and again, in these unprecedented times, who knows what and how many other people will be looking to us. The charity served 400 families last Christmas and is expecting at least 700 families in need this year. Now, our colleagues at CKNW put out the call this afternoon, and generous British Columbians have already donated more than $11,000 to replace the stolen gift cards. They always come through, don't they? All right, a major milestone tonight for an organization dedicated to the welfare of animals. The BCSPCA is celebrating its 125th anniversary. Linda Aylesworth takes a look at the history and legacy of the organization that was first established to protect construction horses. Her name is Penelope, and she is gold in more than color. They don't come in as often as they used to. And so whenever we get a litter in, that uh, causes quite a lot of excitement in the shelter. At the BCSPCA's Vancouver shelter, it's relatively quiet these days. From when I started, there was 40 plus dogs in the shelter at any given time. Uh, to now, you know, you see empty kennels. It's all our hard work paying off. Hard work that spans 125 years, when their focus wasn't pets at all. People were really concerned that horses and donkeys and mules were being used in sometimes awful conditions um, to uh, move timber and other products. They looked to the American SPCA in New York, which had already been protecting working animals for decades. But that wasn't all they were protecting. The first child abuse cases were actually prosecuted using animal protection laws. But in B.C., they focused on the animals. In 1895, the BCSPCA Act was created and a handful of officers got to work. Those, these individuals were going around the province and really trying to identify the most heinous acts of cruelty against animals. In time, their focus would expand because as cities grew, so did the homeless dog and cat population. And so in 1955, the BCSPCA established its very first animal shelter right here in Vancouver. But finding homes for strays was only part of the solution. In the early 70s, the BCSPCA established the very first spay-neuter clinic in all of Canada. And that's been one of the prime reasons why we no longer have a significant pet overpopulation problem. Sadly, cruelty still exists. But euthanasia, once so common due to lack of space and shortage of homes, has all but become a thing of the past, meaning animals like Penelope have happy futures ahead of them. I think we'll get quite a few hundred applications on her, I'm sure. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. So cute. Maybe more. (laughs) Cypress Mountain is rolling out a new attraction, riding on Revelstoke's success. Construction is underway on a mountain coaster gravity thrill ride scheduled to open next summer. The Austrian-made ride will take off from the top of the Eagle Express quad chair on Black Mountain. 
and run over 1,700 meters with nearly 300 meters of vertical drop. Riders will be able to reach speeds up to 40 kilometers an hour and use a handbrake to slow down Revelstoke Mountain Resort's Pipe Mountain Coaster. This one launched in 2016. <laughs> Gonna be fun. It sure does. Up next, new developments in the case against a Canadian woman suspected of sending a letter laced with ricin to President Trump. Also tonight, tension in Louisville as the city awaits a key decision in the death of Breonna Taylor, who died in a botched police raid. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Can you tell what's missing from this playground? Why it's less play and more ground these days. <laughs> Coming up right after Christie's forecast. And that forecast looks bleak. I don't think there's any other way to put it, Christy. Just nope. break no. the news to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like ripping off a Band-Aid, that's for sure. It was nice to see a bit of sunshine today. We transitioned to fall officially this morning, but we're fully into fall mode now. Here's a look at the satellite image. Doozy hitting the coastal regions right now. And this is the first of a series of systems that will push in. So really will be quite relentless. Now here's the timeline. North and Central Coast, Northern Vancouver Island getting hit overnight. Tomorrow morning, that's when we're going to see that heaviest rain for our region. So leave yourself some extra time for your commute to work. You'll likely need it. And then that rainfall shifts inland uh, in the afternoon hours. And the timeline for the winds are very similar with North and Central Coast getting it first. You can see that here. This is overnight. It shifts into the South Coast region through the early morning hours tomorrow. And then winds pick up in the interior from the central interior right through the southern interior through the afternoon hours. And these are generally 40 to 60 kilometer hour gusts uh, coming out of the south. So wet and windy right across the province tomorrow. Here's a quick look at how much rainfall. So interior regions, it's more like showers. The heaviest rain really falling along the coast with the south coast getting the brunt of it. So there's your Wednesday forecast, everyone. Welcome to the first day of fall. I hate to tell you that, but uh, it is going to feel like fall for the next few days as temperatures remain uh, near seasonal or just slightly below 17 degrees as our high for tomorrow. And it's not going to be relentless rain, but we certainly are going to see waves of rain over the next several days. Here's a look at your central windows weather window for tonight. Lost Lagoon. Thank you to Al for that shot. This is the cloud cover that we saw today and the pattern likely that you'll see over the next little while. Now, I want you to know that we will see some breaks in the rainfall over the next couple of days. And as we get closer to the next several ways, we'll have a better idea as to those breaks. But tomorrow, certainly wet through the morning hours, easing off just uh, to more pot, pot, uh, spotty rain in the afternoon hours. So not much of a break tomorrow. OK, thanks, Christy. Don't remember the last time I saw a five day forecast like mm -hmm. that. But such as it is. All right. It appears thieves are sliding to new lows in Burnaby. The Suncrest Elementary Playground in South Burnaby is missing its slide. Police say the blue slide, which is worth thousands, was stolen sometime in the past three weeks. Hundreds of children are currently missing it. The playground structure where it's normally installed is now taped off. Anyone with information is asked to contact Burnaby RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Crazy. But why? But why? The kids. Think of the kids. Um, Is there like a big black market for slides? Yeah, not well, that I'm aware of. We're, we're going to find out, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Strange one. All right. 
All right. If I see someone selling a slide, I'll phone the cops for sure. Uh, okay, for the rest of this year, the Whitecaps will essentially be on one long road trip. You're talking about we're, we're never going to play home anymore. Well, not until 2021. That's why you're seeing the Whitecaps here work out in Portland, because that's their home until the season is over. Also coming up later, hippies and how the times really were a-changing when Global BC first signed on 16 years ago. Voted off the island. <laughs> the, the Canucks island. That's, yeah. <laughs> well, but they'll go somewhere else and get paid very well. I'm not sure the people <laughs> who get kicked off Survivor have that advantage. Uh, well, we've said it all summer, the can Canucks can't keep every one of their players that needs a new contract. Some people got to go. They need money for Pedersen and Hughes when they'll need new contracts next year. So with that in mind, there are rumors out of Pittsburgh that the Penguins would love to sign Chris Tanev, who's about to become a free agent. That, of course, is where his brother Brandon plays. And they would offer Tanev, the rumor says, a five-year deal, which I don't think the Canucks could do. Tanev has says he would love to stay with the Canucks, but he'll want to raise to at least $5 million per year, and he wants to sign a longer contract. Can you say? But despite having a healthy 2019, this guy has been injury-prone in his career. Long-term at $5 million at least, with that track record, might be too much for the Canucks, whereas Pittsburgh sees no problem with that kind of deal. Well, the Vancouver Whitecaps are actually going to be closer to Vancouver, Washington than this Vancouver for the rest of the year. The Caps were given the remainder of their MLS schedule for this year. They'll only play teams on the West Coast. They'll have one game against Salt Lake, but all their home games are going to be in Portland, Oregon, and that's where they'll stay until at least November, which is only about a 22-minute drive from the other Vancouver, Vancouver, Washington. From now until the second week of November, the Vancouver Whitecaps will be practicing, playing, and staying in Portland. Aside from four away games, Oregon will be home from here on out. Being kind of locked down, we're in a hotel that is only for us, but it it really, it's really like a, a vision of the movie The Shining. We're alone in the hotel. It's, uh, it's kind of weird, you know. So a lot of things strike us. We're not in a fully comfort, comfortable environment. And when you go out to walk, we're in a city that is different today. A city that in a normal time is incredibly energetic and positive. And right now is totally empty. Creating their own comfort zone while playing in another club stadium is going to be one challenge. The other is dealing with a compacted schedule where they'll be traveling to away games on the same day that they'll be playing. Thankfully those charter flights will be to Los Angeles, Seattle and San Jose twice. But we're talking in and out trips here. No overnight stays due to MLS COVID rules. You have to understand traveling the day you play in a plane being a close to two hours in a plane. It's, it's weird. It's weird. Land, go to an hotel where you're going to be a couple of hours there before you go to the stadium. I know a lot of teams, every team that's going away is doing that. So uh, for us, it's going to be a new experience. It's such a challenge uh, for us, especially, and I will say that, especially for the Canadian teams. You can compare the, the, the type of 
uh, strain Canadian clubs go compared with with American teams that are always home and just fly in and out. Seattle head coach Pete Carroll has been fined $100,000 and the Seahawks as a team $250,000 because he kept taking his mask off during Sunday night's game against New England. He's one of five coaches who were given the 100 grand smackdown. Carroll had long stretches without his mask. He did wear it occasionally, but the NFL is not kidding around. If coaches don't wear their mask during the whole game, they will get fined. Also being fined, Denver's Vic Fangio, San Francisco's Kyle Shanahan, New Orleans' Sean Payton, and Vegas' John Gruden, who had this to say after not wearing his mask the whole game last night. You know, I've had the virus, okay? I'm doing my best. I'm very sensitive about it, but I'm calling plays. Um, I just want to communicate in these situations, and uh, I apologize. And if I get fined, I, I will have to pay the fine. But, um, you know, I'm very sensitive about uh, all of that, and, and I apologize. Well, when you say you're sorry, give them a hundred grand check. Uh, Salem Field in Buffalo, it's the Yankees, and it's the Blue Jays, and Aaron Hicks is driving in two. When the Blue Jays lose to the Yankees this year, they lose. Kyle Higashioka. Higashioka puts this one against the wall. That's two more runs. That's a 10-1 lead for New York. And that uh, is the way it stands right now in the ninth inning. And Bianca Andreescu is taking the rest of 2020 off to concentrate on getting healthy and also getting in shape for 2021. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Andrea for a look ahead to Global News at 11. And thanks, Sophie. Vancouver police are investigating a pair of suspicious incidents reported by women in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood. Plus, we will have much more on the revelation today by Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry that she has received death threats and has required security at her home over her work related to COVID-19. We're also keeping an eye on the first big fall storm that's heading our way. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie, Chris. All right, Anne, thank you. And 60 years ago, when viewers really wanted to know what was going on, they tuned in right here, and they found hippies. <laughs> That's next. The number one physician referred hearing provider. Well, the 60s were a defining decade from the iconic images of the Kennedy era, the space race, the Vietnam War and the summer of love. It's etched in our collective memory. On October 31st of 1960, Chan went on the air. Those are the call letters. And for a news station, it could not have been a more exciting time as things were changing. As Ted Chernecki reports, Vancouver was a haven for the hippie movement. Leave it to Beaver. In the 50s, British Columbians had been living the leave it to Beaver lifestyle, in a word, conservative. When CHAN signed on in 1960, the timing couldn't have been better for news. Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone, or the times they are changing. As Bob Dylan sang, the times they were a changing. The 60s had Timothy Leary telling these people called hippies to turn on, tune in, and drop out. 
There was power in the flower, and anger amongst an older generation that just fought a world war and couldn't understand what these kids wanted. Uh, I disagree with the hippies completely in their uh, dropping out procedure. I think we should... Uh, everyone who's in this province should participate. BCTV's then-legislative reporter describes the Victoria merchant's complaint that hippies were ruining business. By a minority of the long-haired, unwashed, unattractive people loitering and lolling about the area, on occasion publicly pawing each other. Far from leaving, the hippie movement grew. So-called be-ins were held on the West End and Stanley Park. Protests against the war in Vietnam and civil rights in the states spilled north of the 49th parallel. BCTV cameramen hadn't yet learned the art of pushing through a crowd to get a better shot. President Johnson continues to escalate this war. He is shooting cracks with the survival of the human race. Draft dodgers came and Vancouver was suddenly the San Francisco of Canada and the hyperbole continued. If they take a bad trip, they run to the emergency ward. They contribute nothing towards it. They want our roads, our streets. As far as I'm concerned, uh, some of them now are living in caves. And I can see that if this continues, that our whole civilization could collapse. Many of the hippies of the 60s would later say protesting probably wasn't the best way to affect change, but change they wanted. And for a brand new TV station to sign on the air during such a time, there was, as was once said, a million stories in the naked city. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Amazing. And you can find all the stories as we air them from our 60th anniversary on our website. Tomorrow we'll take a look at the politics of the 60s and the dynasty of W.A.C. Bennett. Collapsing civilization. <laughs> it was very serious. The horror. A lot at stake. Long hair. That's long hair. Remember those there were signs. No shoes, no shirt, no service. Oh, my. How times have changed. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, final word on the weather, Christy. Yeah, well, you'll need shoes at least tomorrow. You'll definitely need gumboots if you can find them and certainly a rain jacket. Yes, wet weather moving in tomorrow morning, everyone. All right, thanks very much. I guess take that umbrella. <laughs> That's 60 rain jacket. Right there. Have a good night, all. Good night.